open up your Bibles to Luke 15. A little bit of an introduction before we get there, but that's going to be our text. We continue. Uh, I'd like to say I was going to stop the study on discernment, but then Mel got me started again with the weekend's meeting. Uh, But no, we've still got quite a bit of discernment left that I'm hoping to get to. We're going to look today at Christians and pain. Um, It's not a subject we should steer away from. Christians have pain. Uh, It's part of this life. And what a... Uh, unbeknownst to Steve, what a perfect song, really, to consider before we go into this subject. Now, in this life, there are a multitude of ways in which we find ourselves hurt. The loss of a loved one to death, for example. And with this type of loss in particular, uh, we have to be healed. We Restoration is not possible. Uh, a loved one that we've lost to death is not someone who's going to be restored as a way of healing from that particular hurt. Uh, There's not something we can do to regain what has been taken in that situation. We trust by faith, of course, that the Lord continues to do all things well, and the scriptures speak to this. Uh, And if you want to hold your place in Luke 15, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, or I'll just read it for you. But 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 9, Paul writes the following, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, We have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Uh, And it is speaking, in a sense here, of the physical body, the physical tabernacle. We groan to be clothed upon by that which is eternal. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought up us from the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. In this final verse, verse 9, is what I'd like to focus on today is in regards to Christians in pain. Loss that is not particularly terminal can be regained, it can be restored, if it be God's will. Loss such as a good friendship or fellowship, and even a family member or friend that you know to be lost in regard of salvation. We will see text in a moment, as I said there in Luke 15. But if an elect person is currently lost, they will be found and restored by their master in time. In our continued study of discernment, I want to look at the pain that comes from loss and, and how we are to respond to it, which is really what we're going to find in Luke 15. There's a multitude of ways of teaching Luke 15, and, uh, and we will certainly find another way in which to do it in our afternoon study when we get to that point. But what I want to look at in Luke 15 today is how these who had lost something handle it, uh, how they handle being without it, how they handle being reunited with it, or in the case of the... Of the prodigal son how they handle its return sometimes we go through pain so much that we can uh that that pain in particular particular leaves us wounded but feeling sensitive to touch if you will 
I, I think of like a burn, how sensitive you'd be to that area. And sometimes that's on purpose so that we can feel the Lord's hand, so that we can feel His return, so that we can feel His comfort. Consider what comes next in the in the text there in 2 Corinthians, for example. Uh, we read verses 1 through 9, but consider verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest. And we should add here that to make manifest or visible or known is how Strong's defines it. What has been hidden or unknown to manifest, whether by words or deeds or in any other way. We are made manifest unto God. We are made known unto God. And I trust also are made manifest, as Paul continues here, in your consciences. This is why we persuade men. Because no man or woman should die untrained, as we've said in the past, quoting a a lesson that Steve had taught two or three years ago. One day all will be revealed before God. All will be manifest or made visible before God. Therefore, there is no gain in hiding it from our own selves in the present. The law is the schoolmaster that reveals our transgression in our consciences. With what we see here in Luke 15, and I want to go ahead and read through this, I want us to understand first, though, that the Pharisees and scribes, the religious and legalistic, have once again gathered to mock the Lord's ministry. And and we're real close to this event in our afternoon study, so it's probably not too hard to imagine for those who have been here for the study He's been getting that pretty steady for a while. Since the last feast, uh, well, since since that last feast, yes, since that last feast, every study has been on him being mocked and ridiculed and his authority being called into question. And the same is true here in Luke 15. They've gathered to mock him, this time focusing on his receiving and eating with sinners, uh, which, again, providentially, this message falls on the day of the Lord's Supper. The Lord responds with three parables, or some consider it to be one in three parts, as they were teaching toward the same lesson. I'm going to teach it as three parables. In a few months, as I mentioned, we'll go back through this all again. But let's go ahead and read all of this to get us started. Luke 15, verses 3 through 32. Verse 3 to the end of the chapter. And Jesus spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now, as I read through these three examples, understand there is a person who has experienced some kind of loss, some kind of pain as a result of loss, in all three of these examples. Verse 5, And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And if you mark your Bibles, I'd encourage you to mark the word rejoicing. Verse 6, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me. You might want to mark that one too. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either that woman, so consider also that woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. Lining up very well with Jude, she's earnestly seeking that which was lost. She's experiencing pain because she has lost something of hers. Verse 9, And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, What? Mark it again. Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, 
There is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth. So, so far we've seen two that have lost something, two going through pain, two diligently seeking, but they're also quick to rejoice when it has been found. And there's also a parallel with them rejoicing with the community or those closest around them, and them, uh, and then heaven having a rejoicing over the same thing. Verse 11, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said, unto his, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, <coughs> and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he, would have, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Verse 17, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry, for this is my son. Now, verse 23 might mark, we see merriment, we see rejoicing. And bring hither, uh, sorry, verse 24, For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. We might mark it again. Now the group is merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came... Uh, I'm going to read this whole thing. We're not going to deal with the last few verses of it. But uh, his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the council, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Verse 31, And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this is thy brother, uh, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let us have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We seek and desire, Father, for your coming very soon. Lord, we ask that you tarry not if it be according to your will, that you prepare our hearts and minds for that event. Prepare us, Father, for the time that we do have remaining, that we would continue to be examples, to be a light, to be a city set upon a hill, to be unhidden, unashamed, to be bold in our profession and in our testimony giving, that we not cast a shadow on the gospel, that we may, as pure as possible, that same saving light that was exposed upon us. 
Lord, we ask you to be with this message, that it be your voice heard and not my own, that you would increase and I would decrease. We ask, Father, that we solemnly approach the Lord's Supper table at the end of this day, Lord, with hearts pure and ready, with minds prepared. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now notice first off that in the Lord's response, he specifically addresses his accusers by placing them in the position of one who had lost something. All three of these parables, the main character, the, this main person that they focus on is one who has lost something. Uh, when we go through this particular event in, a, in the afternoon study, we're going to spend a lot more time on why he said what he said and who he was saying it to and their relation as that older son at the end of this chapter. It's important that we see the whole thing in its entirety because at the end of this chapter we see merriment or rejoicing mentioned two or three more times between verse 29 and 32 because that is the emphasis of the father in that third part. But we'll get to that in just a moment. He brings to their minds, this is his audience, this is those he's talking to, he brings to their minds that feeling of pain, that feeling of hurt, that feeling of loss, which some describe as being an emptiness, in which they are without those precious things, but more importantly also, without control of finding them. What do they do? The very first point I have for you, we see in verse 4-7, through seven, the lost sheep restored. Sheep here. and know the name of their shepherd. They respond to it, as we've seen in our afternoon study. They respond to his voice. They respond to being called, and they follow. For this one being described here, they had a hundred sheep. They had a hundred sheep. And how did they respond when one was lost? Jesus says here, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. I understand this is, there's a typology here. I understand what the Lord is referencing, not probably in full, but definitely in part. But we're going to deal with that when we get to the Lord's ministry. What we're seeing here today is Christians in pain. Christians in pain. And he describes for them the feeling of having lost something, but still being active. Having lost something and still being in motion. Can we respond to every type of pain in that manner? Probably not right away. Uh, it's a very different way to respond to a miscarriage, for example, than somebody stealing your car. But he's describing someone here that takes, uh, takes and sets forth an action plan. One is missing. One must be retrieved. How many of us have lost loved ones? Do we pursue them in love with God's promises until they be found? I don't mean lost loved ones as they were taken home to be with the Lord. I mean lost loved ones that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Do we pursue them? Do we fervently pray for them in love? They are lost. They are without hope. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need salvation. Do we just mention them in a, in a brief utterance of prayer in the morning? Trust that's enough and move on. Or do we weep for them when they're... Their names, when their characters are brought to our hearts and minds, do we weep for them openly, knowing how desperately they have this need and how urgently they must receive it? More specific to the text, what of those who have once walked with us who have departed? Is Christ not able to find them? Is he not able to call them back into himself? Remember, sheep hear their, the voice of their shepherd, they know his voice, they respond to his voice. Will they not respond? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 21, Paul writes the following, Unto me, 
who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith, by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Knit together under his name. What do we see in all three of these parables? Especially the first two in regards to rejoicing. The one who lost something is rejoicing. We don't even see mention of the sheep that's found rejoicing. Now it would be weird in the parable to see the sheep rejoicing. But we understand that if a lost sinner was saved, they're also rejoicing. But we see a rejoicing in the kingdom of heaven as well. All have one thing in common. One God the Father, one God the Son, one Holy Spirit, one overarching power uniting all together. Where do we find our rejoicing? It's only in one source. It's the reason that two of the eight messages last weekend were encouragements unto us, some with much longer titles than others, but encouragements or lifting us up. Because we do get weighed down. Uh, just as an example, in the middle of a sermon, how often do we think about how often the air conditioning is not running, but we don't think about it at all while it is. The, the gaps of our memory when we are content compared to the moments of intense awareness when we are not, when we are discontent. How strong is our faith? I think that we, at times, are really good at praying for that which is missing, that which we are hurting over, and probably not so great as some of the other reasons why we ought to pray, such as giving, thanksgiving, and supplication. How good are we at dropping to our knees and giving the Lord thanks and praise that there are three babies in the room today? I can tell you from my limited knowledge, none of the three came easy. None of the three came in man's time. Not any of them. But have you dropped to your knees and given thanks and praise for the fact that they are here? Thanks and praise that the preacher has to preach louder to overcome their giggles and their cries? That is something to rejoice over. What does this first one do? They rejoiced the sheep was found, and even the heavens rejoiced that the sheep was found. Now yes, this is a picture of Christ Jesus seeking after the lost. But it is in its simplest form. A rejoicing over what was once lost, now being found. As the Father spells out twice in the third parable. What was lost has now been found. What was missing has now been brought home. 
And there is a rejoicing in the home, a rejoicing in the community, and a rejoicing. Not only, I mean, read verse 5. And when he found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, a burden lifted, rejoicing. Verse 6, when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. My greatest need, my greatest hurt has been heard of a living God and has been satisfied. Come one, come all and rejoice with me, the shepherd says. How strong is our faith? Do we give him thanks and praise that we have visitors? In our hour of pain for the loss, we can find comfort in the shepherd. But remember who you're following. Remember all that he has sacrificed. Do we give of a mere couple of minutes to thank him? To acknowledge him? Or do we give daily supplication and praise for his involvement, for his hearing our prayer? And in this case, for his answering our prayer. The community was all pointed to this moment of rejoicing. The heavens, I say unto you in verse 7, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Jesus breaks the walls of the parable and goes specifically at the heart of what he's talking about here. One sinner that repenteth. (laughs) Suddenly he's not talking about just a sheep anymore. Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, for our conversation, which we've said before, also translated citizenship, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. How did those heroes of Hebrews 11 follow? Was it not by faith? How is our faith? I don't know too many that say I'd like to follow like Judas Iscariot. But there are there's a reason that we have names for chapter 11 of Hebrews, such as the Hall of Heroes, the Hall of Faith. Because these are those we'd like to follow like. These are those that we would like to one day perhaps be compared to. And every one of them did everything that they did by faith. What they do? They followed. They followed by faith. Consider verses 8 through 10 as we look at the lost silver recovered. As the woman described in the text notices that she has lost one of her ten pieces of silver, what does she do? Verse 8 says if she lose one piece, does she not light a candle? Does she not illuminate the room in hopes that she might see it? Does she not sweep the house, Jesus says? Does she not seek diligently until it is found? It might seem silly to us in 2023 that a woman would do this over silver. So insert whatever you'd like into this missing, uh, this parable of something missing. But the important thing is how she responds to something that is missing. She brings as much light into the house as she possibly can so that she might have a chance to see it again. She sweeps the house. I don't get the impression, and we don't have a whole lot of details here, but I don't get the impression that this is just a messy woman who never sweeps. Perhaps her house is spotless like most of yours. 
pause for anyone who feels guilty over that statement. But she sweeps the house. Maybe her house is spotless, but she sweeps the house. Why? In hope that she might find this. What is faith? But the substance of things hoped for. She sweeps the house in faith that this name might be found. The house is now lit up. Light has been brought into the home. There's no bushel over the candle. It's wide open. The house has now been swept. And what does she do next? She seeks diligently till she find it. How do you pray for the lost? How do you pray for the hurt that you're experiencing over a broken fellowship? I'm afraid, and we've referenced it quite a few times, that in our time uh, as Baptists, it's gotten easier, remarkably, for our sister churches, and us included, to pray one time for this thing. Maybe this one who has strayed from the truth. Maybe this one who has done everything they can to make sure they are released from our prayers. We pray for them once and we move on. Now there is a place in the Bible that refers to marking what is a danger to our testimony, marking that which is hurtful, ongoingly hurtful. But we don't make reprobates. We're here by the grace of God. We're here because forgiveness is also translated as freely giving. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. None of us in this room have ever earned forgiveness of Christ Jesus for our sins. It was freely bestowed upon us. His righteousness made our inheritance through His blood. She seeks diligently until the late hour and then she gives up. Then turns all lights off and goes to bed. What's it say? She seeks diligently till she find it. We have those who we would love to see come back. One in which we had to vote to remove. We'd love to see him come back. Are you still praying for him? Those who used to be here before I got here, are you still praying for them? Are you still looking for them? Diligently? Or did you pray for quite a while and then decide it's not possible? I'll never forget one of my first conversations with Chris. Why did you say you want to come down here? And I have a feeling it's probably speaking for most here. We've been so long without a pastor. Why would anyone want to come down? We have a lot of sister churches in that same boat. And yet the Lord had for you to have a pastor. I'm not saying I would have come quicker had you sought more diligently. That's not the, the lesson here. But that's an example that the Lord does here. That he does see to seek to restore at times, if that be his will. This woman did all that you can imagine that she could do to find this lost silver. Who in their right mind would, would lose one piece and then make the house darker, bring in dirt and stop looking, and then say it'll show up? But have we not responded that way to some things? Have we not responded this way in regards to the lost who come maybe faithfully to every single surface? Service. Have we not responded that way to visitors who suddenly stopped coming? Have we not responded that way to lost children? Have we not responded that way to hurt that seemingly will never heal? 
I know I have. But that's not what we would say she should do. I would imagine that if my wife called anyone in this room saying she lost something, you'd tell her to look for it. You'd soften that encouragement by saying, turn on the lights, clean the house, and if it's Marcia, she'll say, I'll come right over, and most have that heart, and we will look together until when? Until it be found. This woman did so. Consider the pain that we feel as a result of our own loss. Again, he's talking to Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking to them, uh, to Jesus. They're talking to Jesus about who he's eating with. And he's speaking, as always, right to the heart of the matter. You are hurting. You have lost something. You are missing what is right in front of you, Christ Jesus says. Consider the pain, perhaps, of our own backslidden estate. A fellowship or a friendship that has been broken over some hurt in the past. The woman lights a candle, sweeps the house, seeks diligently that which was lost till it be found. Have we given up rekindling that fire we once lost for the Lord? Have we elected to let that now distant friend continue to walk away from our lives? What happens when we stop seeking a friend who has run away from our friendship? They get further and further and further away. Recall what we read in 2 Corinthians. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14-18 through 18, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things... Uh-oh. Simon Peter already is writing under the assumption that we are looking for something. Seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace, without spot, and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know... These things before beware, lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That last admonition lines up very well with what we see this woman doing. She's seeking diligently till she find it. And Peter writes here, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, Fall from your own steadfastness. Be ye steadfast, the writer says. We must learn forgiveness. The woman brought light upon the truth of her surroundings with a candle. All was exposed and seen. You know what happens when the lights come on? Everything's brought to the light. Nothing is hidden. Something that needs to be addressed can now be seen most plainly. If something is revealed in that light that we need to repent over, don't ignore it. When you put it under the bushel, you're putting that light under the bushel too. Repent of it. Come clean. Why, preacher, should we do such a thing? There is rejoicing in the morning. There is rejoicing at the finding. At the end of each of these parables, there is rejoicing. What do I have to say about Christians in pain? There's rejoicing coming. 
We are made to experience pain that we can rejoice all the more. The mamas in here, these three babies will tell you, they would have loved to have had them sooner. How much do you love them now knowing how precious they are? How hard to come by those babies were. Joy cometh in the morning. The house was swept, all clutter, all obstacles put back in their proper place. You might say this woman's life was set right. Everything that had a place to be was put back in its place. This is the only way to seek diligently, as the text says. Everything had to be put back. Everything had to be repaired or restored to its proper place. You want your brother or your sister back, forgive them. The light will reveal it. Put it back in its proper place. Forgive them. See things for how they are. Stop waiting for good reasons to do so and set things in their proper order today for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want proper fellowship with God again. Stop acting as though something has not come between you. Stop acting as though there's no problem. Keeping in mind that he is immutable, you need to recognize the error was on your end and repent. The text reveals that this woman cherished her silver. She had a desire for her silver's recovery. Do you cherish and desire for this painful lost thing to be recovered as well? Remember the missing silver was still in the house. I know, it's pretty profound, right? The missing silver was still in the house. We don't see in the text that she lit up candles in all of her neighbors' homes, swept the whole neighborhood, and sought diligently every house on the block until she found the silver. It was still in the house. Whatever is hurting today, whatever you have lost, it might still be attainable. It might still be there. Thirdly, and we must go quickly, the lost prodigal returned. And, and I'll tell you from the forefront, there's a lot more to say here than we're going to get to in this message. It's not the intent of this message. Uh, so we will return to this soon. This young man scattered his inheritance. The, the text says, wasted his substance on riotous living, which again, quoting Strong's, define, is defined as uh, prolificately or shamelessly extravagant and immoral. That was the riotous living, Shamely, shamelessly extravagant and immoral. That's how he spent his money. He wasn't investing it in the stock market or in uh, good securities. He was blowing his inheritance, as we would say in 2023. The father likely knew his son well enough to know this was coming. When he asked for his part, he knew what was going to happen. But the text reveals he still had a passionate love for his boy. Look at verses 18 through 21. This is the words of the boy. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Why does he say this? Because in the verses before it, he recognizes that even the servants in his father's home were cared for better than he's found himself to be cared for by the world. He says that the servant has enough bread to spare while he's in the hog pen. While he's made a mess of things and gone through his entire inheritance, even the servants are treated better in his father's home than he is being treated by the world. Take note, beloved. That's what the world has to offer. But in God's home, in the Father's home, ye shall be cared for beyond your deserving. With love enough to spare, with rejoicing enough in the morning, 
to spare. And he's made this plan. I'm going to go back and say, uh, make me as a higher, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. What is happening there is the son has recognized his current estate. He's recognized that he's gone through his entire inheritance. So in the flesh, he is recognizing he has no value. He has nothing left. And he's not seeking to come back to his father's home as his father's son. He's seeking to come back as his father's servant. This is very important for us to understand because according to Jewish heritage, what this son did when he left, he should have been slain when he returned. He brought shame upon his father, shame upon the community. He would not have been embraced by the entire community, which is why the father runs unto him and puts his own cloak upon him. And we'll get to that in just a minute. He puts a new image, a new inheritance, a new name on this boy. I say boy, he's, he's not 15, but understand what I'm saying here. And this, this man, this boy recognizes that. I have to come back as my father's hired servant. He arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father had been watching. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight am no more worthy to be called thy son. I want you to understand in verse 21 is not just his opinion. It's not just his opinion. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. It's not a platitude. It's not just words. This is literally what he had done. I am no longer a man in my father's house. I am not deserving or worthy to be called your son. It's not just I have sinned. This is not some attitude of repentance. This is actual repentance. I don't deserve to be here. And I don't deserve to be John's son. Whatever the last name was, I don't deserve it any longer because I have violated it. I have abandoned it. I have slung it through the pig pen mud. I have ruined it. Our own people, as I said of Jewish tradition, will not have me to be your son any longer. This son did not simply stray or fall away lost. He was willfully departing his father's house. The father is not described by our Lord as abusive or cheap toward his boys. Consider the observations here of Alfred Edersham, who wrote of Jewish tradition, was Jewish himself. He's got a great book that we have in the store in there on the life and times of the Lord Jesus. But he writes, It is the younger of two sons of a father who is equally loving to both and kind even to his hired servants, whose home, moreover, is not uh, is one not only of sufficiently, but of superabundance and wealth. The boy was fully entitled to what he required of his father. The tradition of the time would have dictated the eldest to receive two portions, the younger to receive the third of all movable property, and we're told immediately this man had two sons. This is his exact inheritance. That being said, though, he had no right to claim it during his father's lifetime. This would have been considered heartless to his father and sinful before God. And again, we'll deal with the finer points of this event when we get to it in, the Lord, in, in our study of the Lord's ministry chronologically. We see in the text that we just read that when he was a great way off, the father saw him. What does this tell us, Bible students? 
This father had been watching for his boy to come back for quite some time. Maybe since the day he left. I don't believe that in this text we can infer that he just happened to look up at the right time and see somebody afar off. He's just running to every stranger that's coming down the road. He'd been watching for quite some time. He recognized his son, his boy, his flesh and blood coming up the path and ran to him. Further evidence is on down the page as we see in verses 22 and 23. The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Comparing myself to a calf, if I were skinny and went in there and ate all the food, I would not come back in as a fatted calf. It takes time for a calf to get there. It takes time and, and honestly a little bit of reverence that this will be the fatted calf. The servants would have known who this calf was. The servants would have known where this robe was. This ring and the shoes, they didn't just go fetch any ring and any shoes. It is my thinking that the father had these things laid out in preparation for the reunion that had yet to come, to, to, come to pass. They wouldn't have been confused, the servants. They wouldn't have been confused as a witch calf. The best robe had been laid out. A very particular ring laid out. Shoes that were prepared for him. They would have fit. All of us have a different foot size. These shoes would have fit. He wasn't sliding into somebody else's image. He was sliding into his own shoes, specially fit for him. If it were not so, Christ Jesus would have told us. There's your reference. This was particularly for him. This man had two sons. Not a multitude of sons with one that stayed and a, a many that left. And he was just waiting for one of them to come home. He was waiting for this one to come home. A great lowness was brought upon the son to bring him home. He, that speech that he had prepared in verses 18 and 19, he didn't even say the entire thing when it comes to pass in verse 20 and 21. He got out what he could. I'm not... Fit, I'm not worthy to be called thy son. But what did he find when he came back to the father? A great rejoicing. A great celebration. Had been prepared, had been set for his return. His father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Is this a spiteful father? Is this an angry man at losing Part of his portion to a son who claimed his inheritance early? Or is this a man who had a heart full of rejoicing? You know how you have a heart full of rejoicing? You forgive. Christians in pain, listen to me now. We have to be able to forgive. The title of this message is not an inference that we continue to be Christians with pain. It's how do Christians handle pain. That's the whole idea of discernment. Christians and pain. How do we handle it? Christians and parenting. How do we handle it? How do we handle pain? We forgive quickly. What if the dad literally that afternoon when the son left began to go to the closet and pick out the finest robe and lay it out? And the best ring and lay it out. And the best shoes and lay them out. The servants probably... What are, you, what are you doing, Master? 
These are the finest things. If we lay them out, they might gather dust. If we lay them out, they might be ruined by the sunlight or by the heat. And the Father says, these will remain until my Son returns. These will remain because they are His. These will remain for that great day of rejoicing. Get the calf fatted up and ready. There will be a feast like there's never been. Because we will rejoice and rejoice and rejoice at His return. To have that amount of preparation, this father had to forgive quickly. He had to freely give. My father told me one time, you, in this life, no one will hurt you like your children. The end of that statement ought to be, no one will forgive you like the Father. No one. No one will forgive you like the Father. Now you might have been forgiven some great atrocities, some great hurts in this lifetime. No one will forgive you like the Father. It's absolutely true. Have, have any of us, I imagine many of us, if Paul were here saying that I am the greatest of sinners, many of us will say I'm pretty high on that list. I'm right there with you. Maybe you were the greatest of that time. But in 2023, I might reign supreme. But Paul knew the forgiveness of the Father. None of us have earned it. Many of us left to ourselves would never even desire it. But how do Christians handle pain? You must first forgive. I've preached on forgiveness before. Many of you know through conversation with me, it usually doesn't go well. But the truth of Scripture is, We're not in a place to hold grudges, and vengeance isn't ours. We're called to forgive because He forgave. And to forgive like Christ Jesus means forgiving freely. It means washed white as snow. It doesn't mean I'll forgive but not forget. It means we have to let things go because we have work to do. Work that, by the way, we can't do with resentment in our hearts. You cannot love me like you're called to do if you have a grudge against me. I cannot love you, feed you, edify you, encourage you. Be there in your time of need and sorrow if I have a grudge against you. If I had a grudge against Brother Nate, I probably wouldn't be driving to Florida. Think of the things you wouldn't do if you had just a reasonable amount of an excuse, a reasonable amount of grudge against another. What's he say in verse 24? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. The father's faith, the substance of things hoped for, was that his boy would return. He kept clear his, his, in his home a room, attire, and sustenance for the day of his son's return. I don't. I imagine if those around him, if he wasn't a ruler, if those around him, maybe on a plateau in which they could speak openly in his presence, were to say, "You still think he's coming back?" Uh, John sixteen comes to mind. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The words of Christ. I think this father, because of what he is representing, would smile and say, "Yes, he's coming back." Yes, I watch for him every day. 
Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1-2, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What have you committed unto God? Is there a lost person in your life that you've prayed for, that you've committed unto God, that they will be found? Never stop watching. Never stop praying. They'll be rejoicing in the morning. He seemingly forgave him long before he returned. It's hard to find ways to live in a miserable pain of this kind of loss. When through forgiveness, you are ready to celebrate their return. It is hard to live through any kind of pain. Especially a kind of pain we have chosen to hang on to. We do that, Christians. We keep pain around like it's a pet. It's familiar. It's comfortable. It's my most convenient excuse why I can't do anything that I, others might want me to do. I have this pain. I have this hurt. I have this loss. But what are we to do with that? It's the same two-word invitation Christ has given over and over and over again. Follow me. Ye who are thirsty, I am an everlasting well. Follow me. Ye who are unhungered, follow after me. Do you love me, Simon Peter? Do you love me, Simon Peter? Do you love me? These are the words that Jesus asked Simon Peter. And what does he tell him to do? Feed my sheep. Who modeled that? Jesus did. Follow after me. If you love the Lord Jesus, there's no one you can't forgive. I know there's going to be times where that feels like too, an oversimplification of a very complex lesson. But we're the ones that bring the complicated to these things. We're the ones that make these things so impossible. So hard to overcome. And in Revelation, what do we see over and over and over again? To the overcomer. To the overcomer. He who love your Bible. Go do a word search to that word overcomer. Who's he talking to? What have they overcome? What part of the old man is continuing to remind us we can't forgive? You won't get that from the new man. May the Lord see fit to bless his message. Heavenly Father, Lord.